Disabled individuals account for over a billion people worldwide. This represents the world's largest minority on the web, with $220 billion in discretionary spending power in the United States alone. Yet, the accessible web is more than a financial issue. It is also a moral issue, and it's crucial that we make the web accessible to ensure an equitable information platform. Today's guest is Nick Steenhout. He's an advocate and consultant for accessible development. At the upcoming Fluent Conference, he will be giving a talk entitled, Don't Turn Off That JavaScript Just Yet, referencing JavaScript's history of causing accessibility problems. Today, things have changed, and Nick joins us to explain how to develop JavaScript software with accessibility in mind. Nick Steenhout is a consultant and advocate for accessible web design. Nick, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. Much of your work is around making the web more accessible. What does that mean, accessibility? The very basics of accessibility really is to ensure that websites are usable by people with various disabilities, whether it's someone who has a sight impairment, someone who's blind using a screen reader, or they have uh, mobility impairments, uh, say someone who can't use a mouse because they have uh, tremors in their hands, or someone who's deaf who can't access uh, audio and video bits or podcasts, for example, uh, that, that kind of stuff. So we're, we're wanting to make sure that the web works for everyone, including people with disabilities. Why is accessibility so important for developers to focus on? Ooh, well, there's, there's a lot of thought about that, but um, there's, there's a few primary things. The first thing is, I think, um, it's from an equity perspective. It's good for everyone to have access to uh, services. Um, then it's a question of law uh, in a lot of uh, places, lots of countries, there's different legislations that apply that, that say website must be accessible. And uh, then there's a business incentive. Uh, people with disabilities uh, have money to spend. So if, if we look a little bit more on the business incentive uh, front, the um, people with disabilities represent the largest minority uh, on the web. Uh, the um, um, the average is about 20% of people in our societies have a disability of one form or of another. That doesn't mean that one in five person going to your website has a disability that impacts their ability to, um, to navigate or use the site or buy your products. But um, there are still quite a few people that need access to that, and these people actually have cash to spend. If we look at legal requirements, um, assuming that the majority of your listeners are based in the United States, there's um, there's several uh, laws that apply, uh, mostly at um, federal government uh, agency levels. We're thinking here about Section Eight of uh, Section Five Hundred Eight of the Vocational Rehabilitation act which basically says any uh, government federal government website must be accessible and meet certain standards uh, but there's other as well and there's been uh, quite a few um, 
cases that have been settled uh, before actually reaching uh, a verdict uh, that basically aim to say, if you uh, are doing business on the web the same way you're doing business in a brick and mortar building, uh, your services and products must be accessible. So th- there's quite a bit uh, of things there to to look at, and and I I really don't like to bring this point up, but it's something that we have to consider as well. If we look at uh, say physical accessibility and how a lawsuit c- can be brought if a new construction is not accessible, it's not just the building owner that. Uh, can be named in the suit. It's it's the architects, it's the builders. So it, as developers, we have to be aware that there is a certain level of risk that we have uh, or are exposed to. But the bottom line is accessibility is actually a challenge for coders, and I've yet to meet a coder that doesn't like a good challenge. So we, we really need to look at accessibility in terms of, well, there's all these things that we can do. Why aren't we doing them? And how can we implement uh, accessibility in our projects? It's, it's really about you know, the challenge and making it right for people. Let's explore some of these problems that accessibility presents to the naive programmer. So let's say I'm building some kind of site, whatever you have a canonical example for, maybe an e-commerce site or a search engine or a social media site, what kinds of the web, what aspects of the web experience would someone with certain disabilities uh, have trouble interacting with? There's there's a variety of, of aspects, and, and without going into details about which disability have which impact, I, I can say, for example, that... Um, you have to be able to operate your website with your keyboard only. And that's actually a really easy test, and it's probably the first test that a developer should uh, should do on their app, whether it's e-commerce or social media or whichever, is put your mouse away, put your trackball away, and try to use your website using your keyboard only. And that will give you a pretty good idea as to whether or not you, uh, you're able to um, meet some of those accessibility requirements. Um, so some of the things we're looking at is uh, interactions with um, with tables, with images, with forms. Um, often we look at um, at sites and there's custom custom built uh, form elements instead of relying on native HTML. Uh, elements and the uh, the form is not coded particularly well, so you end up having a situation where you can't check that checkbox or select a radio button just using your spacebar, for example. So, what are the steps that companies are taking to improve accessibility? I mean, it sounds like there are some tactics that individuals can take to assess the accessibility of their websites, such as using uh, you know, using only the keyboard to operate a website, but on a on a on a higher level, what are the steps that companies are taking to improve accessibility of their sites? Well, ideally, um, the first step would be to think about accessibility at the start of the project. Uh, 
if you if you look at one of the major oppositions to to implementing accessibility as companies are saying it costs too much if if accessibility is planned for from the start then it ends up not being significantly more expensive it's a little bit like if you're to build a house and you put in a narrow door that can't be used by a wheelchair user and five years later you want to put in a door that's wide enough for a wheelchair user you end up having to rip off half the wall and put in a door and that's expensive but if you had put that door wide door from the start then it wouldn't be that expensive so it, it's a little bit the same way in terms of, of web accessibility start thinking a bit of it as as the project develops and, and think about the the different guidelines there, there's probably the best set of guidelines to to look at is uh, from the W3C. It's called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, uh, often shortened as WCAG or WCAG, uh, which gives a set of of criteria that will help determine whether a site is accessible or not. Of course, we have to remember accessibility is not a checklist. It's not, you know, tick yes, tick no. There's a little bit more to that, uh, to it than that, but it's a good start. So companies looking at their projects from the start, starting to think about accessibility, making sure that uh, the app or the site meets criterias and then doing testing, whether it's, it's testing by the developers, by accessibility specialist and in the end uh, relying on user testing because nothing beats user testing Mm. so at the upcoming o'reilly fluent conference you're going to be giving a talk called don't turn off that javascript just yet and this is related to the accessibility discussion why is your talk titled that because for a very very long time um uh, JavaScript was causing a lot of accessibility issues for, for people, particularly people relying on assistive technology, whether it's a screen reader or uh, command and control software such as uh, Dragon uh, Nuance, naturally speaking. Um, and for a long time, the solution was uh, use no script or make sure that the site doesn't work works without JavaScript. And a lot of people were saying, well, you know, don't use JavaScript. It reduces accessibility. And the fact is, uh, today's browsers, today's assistive technologies, today's uh, way to implement JavaScript with different libraries, actually, you can make a site more accessible using JavaScript. And um, you just have to think about a few things to... um, to really make the site accessible. If, if you just throw in some, some event handlers without thinking about it, uh, then, yeah, you're going to have problems. But you don't have to turn off JavaScript to make a site accessible, and you can even use it to uh, make the web more accessible. Let's talk in more detail about how to build those accessible sites when using JavaScript. Yep. So if event handlers are used by JavaScript developers to manage interactions so if you think about on-click or on-load or on-mouse-over, yeah. these are events that happen. So the page might respond to an on-click event you know, when a user clicks. Yep. How should a developer who is working on an accessible experience think about these event handlers? Well, the first thing to do is, is ask yourself, what 
unintended consequences is my script going to cause? For example, if you're uh, creating a custom uh, custom button using a div instead of using the button tag, which uh, honestly I don't recommend, but some people do that, and then you tie in a onclick event to that, what happens when the user doesn't actually use a mouse, therefore doesn't click on it? Nothing's going to happen. So you have to, to basically sniff for these events and say, oh, all right, um, what kind of alternative can I do? And if someone triggers the button with the spacebar or the enter key, then uh, parse that as having been an unclick event and trigger your action. Mm. Pop-up windows are not as popular as they used to be, but they are still in use. How can pop-ups lead to accessibility issues? Well, there's two um, two major problems with pop-ups. I mean, there's several problems with pop-ups, but the, the two major ones is that um, focus is not brought to the pop-up window. So if someone is using a screen reader they won't necessarily see that there's a pop-up. And if the focus is not placed in the pop-up in the modal window, then the screen reader is going to read what's behind the pop-up and the user is not going to see that there's anything there. Um, As a side of that is that someone who uses a keyboard only, whether they're sighted or uh, use a screen reader, they're not necessarily going to be able to tab into any... um, interactive uh, elements on that uh, model. So to make a model more accessible, you want to make sure that A, the focus is brought to um, is brought to the model, B, that the focus is trapped in the model until the model is closed. And then there's a couple other things like you want to make sure that uh, there is a close button or an escape button that uh, works. Otherwise, then if you have the focus trapped in the model and the user can't close the model, then you're a little bit up the proverbial creek without the paddle. <laughs> so you, so when you say pop-ups, you are referring to modals. Yeah, modal windows. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned a screen reader. Yeah. We had Leonie Watson on the show, and she discussed accessibility engineering for the blind. She's she is blind, and she yeah. uses a screen reader. Define what a screen reader is and how a blind person uses a screen reader. Um, well, Leonie is, is really a fantastic uh, woman, uh, and I'm glad you had her on the show. She probably talked about screen readers uh, a lot more in depth than I can. But basically, a screen reader is a software that reads the screen uh, as one thing, so it basically it, it interacts with what you have on the screen, but it's also a control and command uh, application that will let you uh, navigate your operating system, uh, open applications, open files, uh, interact with the different aspects of the applications you're you're using, and basically tells you what's going on on the screen. So a user can. If we're looking at a web page, the user can read the entire page starting from top to bottom or can use shortcut to read all the headings on a page or to try the um, try to find the different form elements. So there, there's several different shortcuts that 
can be used to see what's happening with that. To get back to the discussion of JavaScript, don't turn off that JavaScript just yet. So accessibility experts used to turn off JavaScript when they were trying to test a site and determine the accessibility of a site. Could you explain in more detail why this was a pattern? Why did developers use the idea of why could why could you just turn off JavaScript to judge the accessibility of a site? Well, because so much assistive technology, such as screen readers or or other uh, bits of software, did not interact well with JavaScript. It was um, it was a good indicator if you loaded a page without JavaScript to to see if the page worked or not. Uh, we look at um, graceful degradation, and that's one of the concepts. You know, if, if you turn off JavaScript, the page is still going to work. And, and I think that's still important because it's not just an accessibility issue. It can be a bandwidth issue on mobile. It can be um, – I've heard businesses that turn off JavaScript at the firewall, at the corporate firewall, because they think there's – danger of, of malicious uh, interactions there. So uh, th- there are some aspects of using JavaScript that we can't really rely on on it being present. So it's not just about accessibility. But until a few years ago, um, JavaScript really was a major problem with, with accessibility. And uh, that's why we were looking at sites without JavaScript to to get an indication as to whether or not uh, some aspects of accessibility were met. Did that change because people got more savvy about handling their accessibility issues, or was there something in JavaScript or the JavaScript frameworks that became more accessible? I think it's a combination of things. Um, First, of course, awareness is growing, and that's great. Uh, we're not quite yet there. There's a lot of people that aren't aware of it, but it's growing, so that that's encouraging. The other aspect is that um, technologies are evolving. Um, assistive technology is better able to handle some of those um, some of those uh, technologies. The technologies themselves are changing, and some standards are changing as well. Uh, for example, there's um, there's a, um, a W3C guideline called Area, uh, which is accessible, rich, uh, interactive application. I think, off the top of my head, um, which gives a series of, of attributes and and um, different tags you can use that will help um, in parsing. Uh, events and what's going on on the screen so that that helps assistive technologies uh, interpret what's going on uh, i'm thinking here of, of an example for example if you're reloading dynamically part of a page on on a user uh, user interaction um, screen reader doesn't necessarily know that that section of the page has been reloaded so there's a way to to determine that an area uh, an area of the page is a live area things are changing there so using an area attribute saying uh, this page this section is live will inform the technology that something is happening 
Okay, so I want to talk about some more modern things that people can do to build accessible products. So page refreshes can create accessibility problems. Why is this? Because assistive technologies and and specifically screen readers can only um, announce what they see. And typically what they see is what is loaded on the on the first page load. So if you have a page refresh, uh, especially if it's not the entire page that's refreshed, but just a section of the page, then that's not being announced to the screen reader uh, unless you have coded it to tell the screen reader, hey, this is happening. So say on your event, uh, you're reloading a segment of the page, whether it's tabs or, or just a schedule or uh, if you're having um, you know, a flight schedule and you're reloading that, um, that can be announced. You can say, hey, we've, you've clicked on the sort this column by, by departure time. We've sorted it and you have to be aware that this is resorted again. Whereas if you just click and it just happens on the screen in that area, unless the page is completely refreshed, which you don't really want to do that necessarily, there's no way for the screen reader to know. So you have to code it in a way that lets the assistive technology know what's going on. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't talked much about your personal experience. How did you get involved in the field of accessibility? I'm, uh, I'm an individual with disability myself. I'm a wheelchair user. And in the 1990s, I was working with, um, with a colleague who was blind. And at the time, everybody on the web, everybody was so excited. Images were starting to be... Um, used quite extensively, but uh, my friend came up to me and said, Nick, you work on the web quite a bit, and I don't understand well why that excitement about images is there, because when I listen to a web page that has an image with my screen reader, it just says image. It doesn't say anything. So I realized, well, there there is actually an issue there. And I started looking into what can we do? And around that time, then the alt attribute for images started coming and being used a little bit more. So from there, I really got passionate about web accessibility the same way I'm passionate about uh, our built environment accessibility. Mm. How have accessibility solutions evolved since the 90s? I think that... um, it's evolved in several different ways, uh, and I think it's a. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking for a word. It, it's symbiotic. That's the word I'm looking at for. It's symbiotic because there's more awareness of accessibility that is happening. From more awareness, developers are making sites more accessible. The, based on the current knowledge of accessibility and coding. From there, the the assistive technology is is implementing different ways to to reach access the hooks that help make a page more accessible. And 
then we're looking at evolving guidelines and standards which help us develop that. And then there's evolution of, of different frameworks. Uh, jQuery today is, is wildly different than it was five years ago. Um, and, and other um, libraries like that start to think about that. So as people are using the tools, the tools are being developed, and then the assistive technology is saying, hey, this is being used more and more, and there's these new things, and we're going to start uh, implementing these in our in our tools. So it, it's a bit of a, a symbiotic uh, situation where things are actually evolving, and, and it's really cool to see that happen. So you are disabled in the physical realm the you know you're in a wheelchair but so it's it's interesting to me that you have taken a focus for accessibility on the web because ostensibly the web is something which you are not naturally inhibited on like it's a it's a platform where your disability does not really uh uh pervade is that accurate yeah you know for me accessibility i i i don't look at it as it's web accessibility or it's physical accessibility or it's accessibility for the blind or accessibility for people who are uh, have dyslexia i i don't look at it that way i really look at it as a holistic kind of approach and i'm interested in all kinds of um, all kinds of um, aspects of accessibility. Uh, having worked for several several years with people that had various disabilities, I had the chance to learn about the different barriers people meet depending on on their impairment. So um, I'm really looking at it more as as a whole um, part and parcel of life. So my passion is accessibility. I express that passion through working on the web because it's it's a fairly technical thing and I happen to be a bit geeky. So I've, I've got that interest going there. But it's I, I, I don't think that only people who are blind should be interested in accessibility for screen readers. I don't think only people who have dyslexia should be interested in making sure sites are using plain language. I don't think that only people who are deaf should be passionate about captions on the web because it it all ties together. Uh, If we think about captioning on the web, uh, well, obviously it helps people who are deaf or have hearing impairments. But there are so many other wins there at putting caption. Uh, First, captions and transcripts are searchable and indexable. So it's, it's a win from trying to find content there and being indexed in search engines. Then the number of people who are trying to look at videos in noisy environments, whether it's between flights at an airport or uh, when your kids are watching a movie and you're trying to watch a tutorial video or something like that, captions can really help a whole range of people. So by that same token, my interest in accessibility is not just for me, but I think it's, it's reaching in many different areas. When the world does not cater to people who have disabilities and who 
might require augmentative accessibility technologies. When the world does not cater to these people, what kinds of, like, what volume of economic or utilitarian value are we missing out on? That's a game I don't like to play, Jeff, I have to say. Um, oh. <laughs> because uh, at the very bottom, I'm going to say to you, well, are we looking at people or are we looking at money? Uh, what's more important? Is it people or is it money? Uh, obviously, from a business perspective, money is quite important. So we can play that game and, and try to start analyzing um, analyzing costs and revenue lost and all these things. Um, but it's really hard to tell. Um, we can do a quick look at um, money, at the business case for accessibility. And, and differently, there is a business case. There is commercial incentive. Um, and if we want to look at hard numbers, I can tell you that uh, according to the uh, U.S. Census in 2010, there were 19% of the population that had a disability. Uh, so if we say that conservatively, there's two person, whether it's family or friends, for each um, person with disabilities, we look at maybe 38% of people that have an interest in accessibility. Uh, because um, if a store is more accessible than another, uh, several of my friends are going to say, hey, I'd rather give my money to this store or site that has made an effort to be accessible. So we're looking at potentially 57% of people that have knowledge of interest or desire to use accessible sites. Um, there was a study in 2005 done by the Royal Bank of Canada that uh, said that people with disabilities in Canada had a combined spending power of $25 billion annually. So that's looking at a lot of money. Um, other other uh, census say 73% of people with disabilities are head of households, so making decisions about where they're spending the money. Um, the thing is, we can't say that because a fifth of the population has a disability, uh, a fifth of the population is going to need accessibility. We don't know that. We don't have metrics to actually tell whether someone is using a screen reader or using the keyboard only or any other requirement. We don't know. So is your aversion to discussing this in terms of economic utility, does that aversion come from a place of the fact that it's not a argument where we can have really good convincing data or is it more that you feel we shouldn't even need to go there and this should be sort of a basic uh, human um, it, you know level of entitlement if we're if we are having a uh, if the type of society that we should have we should be building these these accessibility tools yeah, I, I think it's it's really a question of right or wrong. Uh, it's it's a question of equity of access. Uh, I'm not sure it's an entitlement, but it's certainly the right thing to do. Um, there is a business case to be made. Uh, 
But giving hard numbers as to how much money you're going to make if you make your site accessible, it's really hard to tell. Um, and you really can't measure it. But uh, I would throw it out uh, here. Uh, in today's economics uh, environment, um, can any business afford to miss on even 1% or 2% extra revenue? And I'm pretty sure that the revenue will be higher than 1% or 2%. But um, bottom line, business is hard for everyone and increasing revenue is good. But businesses also like to do the right thing to do from uh, from a social and ethical responsibility. So it, it really all ties up. Most of your work these days is consulting around accessibility, if I'm correct. What kinds of companies do you consult with and how does that consultation process go? Um we we work with a whole range of of clients from um from large retail uh store that that have online presence to airlines to uh service organizations so it, it, we we work with a, a wide variety of of clients um and typically typically it's um it comes out of of two uh, two main reasons, two main um, motivators. So the first motivator is a company is uh, seeing that um, you know they actually have improvement to be done in the area of accessibility, and they come to us and they say, "Hey, look at look at our websites, look at our service, and tell us." what we're doing good, what we're doing wrong, where we can improve and uh, help us train and, and improve. And in some situation, there's, of course, the um, the threat of legislation. For example, if you're looking at airlines, uh, at the moment, pretty much all airlines that operate in the United States are scrambling because they have to meet the Air Carrier Accessibilities Act, which um, which came into uh into act in December last year there's a bit of a there's a bit of an opening that say you have an extension until June this year but um basically by the end of this year your site must be fully accessible so there there's that you know two prong thing people want to do the right thing and people are concerned about making sure they meet their uh, legal um legal obligations yeah, I don't have any accessibility issues, but I have serious issues with the uh, the airline websites myself. Well, uh, on that note, I would like to just point out that um, a lot of the time when you start looking at usability, uh, you will improve accessibility. If you're looking at coding to standards, you will improve accessibility. So by the reverse perspective, if you improve accessibility a lot of the time you will improve usability and everybody benefits. Right, because I can imagine the problems that I have probably are exponentially worse for a blind person. So like, you know, when I land on, you know, an airline page with a million different things on the page, and that would be the number one thing that comes to mind in terms of like, what do these airline sites do wrong? They have they just litter their page with a bazillion different things. 
and it's not clear at all what am I supposed to be looking at, what should I be clicking on, I can't imagine being blind and using a screen reader and having the screen reader reading every little widget and pop up and yeah information overload uh it, it, it's tough on people that rely on screen readers it's tough on people that have uh, attention deficit disorder it's tough on people that have uh some level of learning impairments so yeah if if you simplify the interface um you will make it a lot easier for for people with disabilities but also for busy people that are trying to just book a flight and be done with it um, so it really is a case of accessibility benefits everyone. Um, another example from the built environment, curb cuts at street corners. Um, it's good for wheelchairs, good for kids on skateboards, it's good for parents with uh, baby strollers. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it really benefits everyone. Mm, it sounds like, this is interesting because it sounds like it's not a trade-off, like you know, most of the times in software engineering, when we're talking about focusing on something, focusing on some specific group, it's a trade-off. And by focusing on one group, you may be sacrificing for another. But this sounds like a case where perhaps maybe you have to give up some time if you're going to focus on accessibility on your website early on. But perhaps that focus uh, propagates to you just making a more elegant experience overall. Absolutely. It's it's not a trade-off. It's not a question of, oh, we're going to put in accessibility so uh, these other users are going to be penalized or the experience is going to be worse. No, it's quite the opposite. If you focus on accessibility from the start, you're going to end up with a more usable, more friendly uh, website that's going to be good for people with disabilities, but it's going to be good for your 95-year-old grandmother that's trying to read the news on her iPad. It's going to be good for um, you know, the, the coder that's trying to look at your site on their cell phone when they're outside and light gray text on white background just doesn't work for people with disabilities that have low vision, but it doesn't work either when you're trying to look at the site on your cell phone outside in the sun. So it's, it's not a question of trade-off. And in terms of, you, you mentioned, um, taking more time. So it costs a little bit more from, uh, from the get-go, I would say that, yeah, if you don't have that reflex of thinking accessibility, it will take you a bit more time, but it's not going to be very long before you have that skill, you have that knowledge base, a little bit like, you know, you're expected to know how to code JavaScript, you're expected to know how to code PHP or whichever language you're using, there's conventions there. And if you're a developer, you like to be able to understand that. And you had a bit of a learning curve at first to make sure that you open your tags properly, you close your tags properly, you don't use a comma instead of semicolon, that kind of stuff. It goes quite quick. Once once you start using that regularly, you don't actually, quote unquote, lose time anymore. It's it's just part of what you do. It's part of the standards. It's It's part of the job. You are not a software engineer these days, as I understand, but you keep in touch to some degree with what is going on with software. And this is probably somewhat similar to how I spend my time. Like, I, you know, most of my time is spent doing an interview, doing interviews like the one I'm doing now or Mm. preparing for those interviews. 
And I don't allocate much time to writing code these days, and I don't pretend to. (laughs) So how do you stay in touch with what developers do and how developers think and how engineers think and the software engineering process without writing code yourself? Well, I look at code. That's what I do. I I go on a website, I look at what people do, and and I analyze code, and I look at what works and what doesn't work from an accessibility perspective. So over the years, I'm, I'm able to see trends, I'm able to see what changes, and sometimes you come across some really creative bit of code, and you go, huh, why did they do it that way, and, and does it work, and does it not work, and you know, you do a bit of research, see if other people have used it, and, and it, it, you never really go really far of of coding. I mean, no, I don't spend my day writing hundreds of lines of codes a day, but I do spend my days looking at hundreds of lines of codes that other people have written. So that that really keeps keeps me in touch. When I had the idea for this podcast, and some of the people I talked to. They a, a level of concern that they expressed, and and I have to admit I was totally aware this was a possibility was that by not writing code, I would inherently be removed from the ideas that are inherent in what it means to be a software engineer. So mm. it would almost in by virtue of that, it would invalidate my opinion to be able to do software engineering daily over time. Mm. Um, so do you feel, is is there anything that you feel deprived of because you can't, because you're not writing code? Like, is, do, do, and just judging by, you know, how you assess the engineering process from the outside looking in, is there anything that you think that maybe you have trouble empathizing with on the level of granularity that you wish you could? No, because the you know doing uh, accessibility audits involves looking at code, involves testing code in, in real world environment. But when things aren't working quite right, it also involves writing code as recommendations. Um, so you you have that interactions with with software engineers. You have that interactions with code and. Uh, Things change, and you, you you have it as a bit of a responsibility to to keep yourself um, upskilled and, and seeing what's happening. So I, I don't think it's it's a question of deprivation. Uh, I don't think it's a question either of of us versus them. I I think it's it's just different aspects of the same job. In the end, you you have an interest, you have an understanding, you can speak the language, and you keep yourself um, upskilled. I. I think it all goes hand in hand. I found your background fascinating as I was preparing for this show. You worked for 11 years as a chef and a sous chef and a cook, and you worked at several organizations on projects for the disabled. You worked at an anti-euthanasia organization called Living with Dignity. And one of the themes that we've explored on Software Engineering Daily is this idea of career reinvention and being able to be mobile in your career, uh, it seems to be a theme as we move into the future and certain jobs get automated, other jobs uh, 
come out of nowhere and and uh, present new opportunities for people who are willing to learn how to do those jobs. Um, what are your thoughts on how someone should manage their career mobility? And, and how have you learned from all of these different career experiences that you've had? Mm. I think the first thing is don't compromise on yourself. You are who you are. You have values, you have passions, and you shouldn't compromise on that. Um, the other thing is keep an open mind because skills you learn in one career path are quite useful in other careers. For example, when I was a chef, um, that was before I used a wheelchair, uh, when I was a chef, I learned how to um, work under pressure. I work, learned how to multitask. I work, learned how to um, be agile in, in, in a way because we were doing rapid iteration of menus and we were reassessing did the menu work, did it not work, what dish is popular. And we were doing agile before it was really term that way. So you look at those skills that are transferable and, and how you can use them from one career path to another. So if we look at what I brought from my experience working in the kitchen, well, I had leadership experience, I had teamwork experience, I had an understanding of working under deadline, I had work an experience of um, managing large Projects so that transferred uh, to my nonprofit work, working with people with disabilities. Uh, it also transferred itself in my experience working on open source projects, whether it's uh, Joomla or the little bit of WordPress I did, and, and these kinds of things. And, and it transfers itself into doing accessibility work. So I think it really comes down to look at um, who you are, what you are, what you want to do what skills are transferable, what knowledge you have that can be adapted and um, and go with the flow a little bit. You have to do planning, but you you also have to be open-minded and, and look at different opportunities that come knocking. Uh, even if you don't know it's an opportunity, you just keep your mind open to, to what's happening. We had Leonie on the show to discuss uh, how you know, except how her life has changed since she lost her sight. She lost her sight, I think, when she was 20 or 22 or mm. something. And so she had lived a lot of her life with sight. And similarly, you lived a lot of your life with the ability to walk. You didn't use a wheelchair. Mm. What kinds of things did you learn or what changed in your life after the in the inflection point of uh of you know starting to use a wheelchair everything changed and nothing changed um it's a bit of an ambiguous response but really i i'm still the same person i'm still who and what i am um having to use a wheelchair um exposed me to different communities that I had not been exposed before, specifically the, the community of people with disabilities, where I learned a whole lot about accessibility and, and different barriers people experience. Um, so I 
and from that perspective, everything changed because I discovered a whole new world that I had no idea about. Uh, I, I think most people don't have awareness of um, of what life with a disability is until they either have a personal experience with disability or know people that have disabilities. But at the same time, nothing changed because I was who I was, I am who I am, and... Um, you know, on the surface, yeah, I changed because I couldn't work in a kitchen anymore. But that's that's just you know, almost cosmetic. I think it it didn't it didn't really change who I am. It just exposed my passions. It's fascinating. What is something counterintuitive that you have learned about accessibility? I think the. The main aspect that a lot of time is is being missed is that meeting all the success criteria of uh, WCAG does not necessarily mean a website is going to be accessible. So if you approach accessibility from a checklist perspective, you may miss things. So uh, in other words, you can actually have code that if you just look at the code it actually works it's accessible and and yeah it's going to work but when you put it through the test of real life user experience you're going to discover that while things are actually not necessarily working all right um, an example of that would be uh, code a form properly associate all the labels to the text inputs um, make sure that the required field are actually announced as required fields and all that. But when you go to um, present it in a visual way, uh, the, uh, the code that works from a keyboard-only or screen reader user perspective, because of the layout of the form, it becomes actually quite difficult to tell uh, what field is which field is which for someone who has low vision or is using a small screen so counterintuitively it's not just about making sure your code meets various guidelines but it's about making sure that the solution as a whole actually works the guidelines are there as guidelines they're not the necessarily the be all and end all of of accessibility okay well nick steenhout that's a great way to close off um i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about accessibility engineering and i look forward to seeing you at the fluent conference i will be there with a t-shirt to give to you oh well thank you (laughs) thanks so much great see you in a couple weeks